Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Everyday Theology, where we as ordinary pastors connect theological truths to ordinary everyday believers. My name's Ben Campbell. I'm here with Dustin Walters. Dustin, how you doing today? Man, I'm doing well. Uh, glad to connect and get some more podcasts out there for our amazing listeners today. I am too, and I think we're going to have some some good content for them today. Um, this probably is going to be more along the lines for uh, pastors and teachers of the Bible, more more pastors than anybody. But today, I think it would be good for us to sort of uh, talk about what the essentials are for a sermon uh, preached from the pulpit. Um, Dustin, w- would you kind of, in one sense, just this is an off the cuff thing, but w- would you sort of just sort of give a a definition of preaching for our listeners? I'll be be glad to uh, accept it. First, I want to begin with a funny story. I was in a service one time at an undesignated location. And <laughs> in that service, uh, the music was very good quality. And the pastor stood up and he said, I just think the sermon already preached itself. We can just go home. Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. But I really struggle, Ben, to find a service where the word isn't central. All right. So there we go. Um, that's kind of a lead in for us to talk about today. What is preaching? Preaching, as Phillips Brooks said, is divine truth communicated through human personality. And I would add that calls for a response rooted in the historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Okay, so that's uh yeah, that's a good a good solid definition. Um I think uh Thabidian Yabwile says something that I'm probably gonna butcher his definition, but he says something like preaching is uh God's word being talked about through a man about God's son by the power of God's spirit. Um and essentially what what we often do with preaching, isn't it, is that we often try to complicate the definition and so uh we're not wanting every to do that preaching here. textbook has to have you know a longer sentence definition than <laughs> everyone so you've got the phillips brooks definition and then you've got like jerry vines and jim shaddix which they're like should be 18 words or less i'm like i think 18 is a little much but you know right right yeah everybody's got their own definition of preaching in one sense um but and everybody's got their own definitions of 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 what a sermon should be like, but we're just going to kind of really hit again, like I said in the beginning of of the podcast, the non negotiables uh, here. We're going to call this essentials of a biblical sermon or something like that. There you go, yeah, something like that. So, Dustin, go ahead and uh, if you would, maybe just uh, kind of get us with a first steps into you know what it means to preach a sermon what it means to uh to develop a sermon as it as it is well preaching is as much a sermon to the pastor first and foremost before it is a sermon to the congregation and so therefore there is the important first element of personal prayer and a wonderful little book i heard about on uh, expository preparation <laughs> but um no, seriously, like the first part in sermon 
anything. Developments. So, so sermons can be divided into two categories, right. development and delivery. Development mm-hmm. is the process where you're in the study. You know, maybe you're at your local Chick-fil-A and you're writing your sermon on a napkin. I don't know what people do, but that process wherein you know, you're getting yourself ready to preach on Sunday. So you pray, you're getting yourself basically preparing your own heart. So kind of to back up, there's development and delivery in sermons. What we want to look at is both the elements that are involved in development and delivery. Obviously, that'll be kind of a standalone where delivery is more the practical stuff. But as you're developing the sermon, uh, the sermon in many ways has already begun, Ben. What do you think about the idea that the sermon isn't finished until you preach it? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's 100% correct. Um, the sermon doesn't start uh, when you open your Bible in one sense, though. The sermon starts, you know, when you close your eyes and say, Heavenly Father, and you know, continue with, with words. Um, and, and that's the, again, I, I am convinced the more important element of preaching or uh, proclamation is the pastor preparing his own heart and asking the Lord to, you know, reveal the meaning of this text to him. Again, we've mentioned several times, it's more important for us to, uh, to depend on the Lord than it is to, be as good as skilled of a homiletician as we are. Spurgeon, our good friend Spurgeon, uh, once said, work as if it depends on you. Pray as if it depends on God. Now, Spurgeon did not mean do not go in the study. He did not mean just get up there and shuck the corn even though you hadn't read the Bible all week. I'm sorry if we're stepping off those here. But mm-hmm. I have seen people, Ben, share that quote from Spurgeon, work as if it depends on you, pray like it depends on God. Some people go to extremes with both sides of that definition. Either they emphasize prayer to the point that there's absolutely no like study time, or maybe they do the opposite. Maybe they're just so rigid in their planning and studying that they don't actually like get on their knees and pray and spend time with the Lord. So the first step in sharing from important elements of a sermon is that the preacher must first be uh, a man of prayer and he must first prepare his own soul, which by the way, that also includes confession of sin. Um, All of us deserve God's wrath. We've received his grace and his mercy. Uh, We're believers through faith, uh, but we need to begin our preparation by saying, Lord, I need this sermon. Before my church needs this sermon, I need this in my heart. Yeah, that's exactly what the the uh, the Puritans said. Is they wanted to preach basically from the heart of the preacher to the heart of the listeners. Uh, if the heart of the preacher has not been affected by the text of Scripture, Martin Lloyd Jones would say the same thing. Um, then it's oftentimes it's not going to compel the heart of the listener to respond. Um, and that's that's so important. And, and these first steps. That, that's the most important uh, element is in preparing your heart to preach and preparing your soul is understanding that that you need the gospel just as much as as your people do uh, that 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 you're a wretched sinner just like they are 
Well, you bring up a very important element um, in preparing your heart for a response. That there is this ongoing debate in preaching circles among ministers, like what's the difference in teaching and preaching? And there's been kind of debate back and forth on what the differences are or if there are any differences. Um, But I would simply say that in my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, um, the difference in teaching and preaching is that in a sermon, you are calling for a response. Now, you're not manipulating the spirit. You're not manipulating people. You're not necessarily singing all five verses of Just As I Am 17 times to hurry up and get people to (laughs) the altar, right? Um. But at the same time, as you sit down to prepare your heart, you are thinking about response. As I read Matthew five sixteen, you are the salt of the earth. You know, the light is sitting set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Then I need to ask myself, how is God calling me as a as a pastor and a minister to respond and as a disciple? And then when I have that question, how is he calling Arbor Grove or Rejoice or whoever else church to respond? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's get to the sermon itself. Um, There's really just a a few key elements here that I think are important, that we think are important. Um, And really the first one I think that is a non-negotiable when it comes to a Christian sermon is the the fidelity of biblical exegesis. Extra Um, Jesus. What did you say about extra Jesus? Yeah, extra. Up here in Northeast Arkansas, we say extra. Um, <laughs> but uh, Dustin, walk us through sort of um, the the process of exegesis and uh, how that plays into constructing a sermon, if you will. Well, in a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about interpreting the Bible and the similar process for what everyday believers are going to use is what a pastor is going to use. So exegesis, exa meaning pulling out of, and we're going to look at the biblical text um, to begin to think about um, what is the central idea of the text and what is the objective of this sermon? For example, that's a later step in the process. So to back up, the first step in the sermon itself is in exegesis, which means that you're going to sit down with the Word of God. I had a pastor friend, an older pastor friend, and I actually loved that he did this in his method. And you know this brother who was on faculty at Welch for years um, and who's now retired. But this brother... On one side of a legal pad, he'd write out the biblical text, and he'd write it by pen. And then on the other side of it, he'd write, you know, what his first thoughts were. And he told me that many times his first thoughts for the sermon would end up being what ends up making it through the whole process to the sermon itself. So I don't know if you might have any remarks, and in, in you're your preaching more frequently as a lead pastor than I am. Um, I would get to preach a couple of times a month in my role as an associate pastor and discipleship pastor. But tell me um, in your own study if you found some similar method to be helpful or maybe maybe you do something different in your exegetical unpacking the text part of the, the process. Yeah, no, I, I that's actually exactly what I do. This is kind of funny, but I actually go to like a, a, a Bible gateway or a BibleHub.com. And actually just actually just print off the pages and and we'll write all over those pages of this the text I'm gonna preach. Um 
And so I underline and I kind of have my own subconscious way of deciphering the the emphatic parts of the passage and the the sort of the disclaimer parts of the passage and the um, sort of the the sub parts and the parts and and that kind of add to the whole. Um, And so and, and work from there. Right. So up front, I'm not drafting an outline. You know, you don't want to draft an outline too quickly um up front what i'm trying to do is just get my um get my mind into the groove of what this text is saying and that that entails a couple of different things doesn't things like biblical theology things like contexts things like uh this you know the stories within uh the book itself right and you mentioned that as part of Part of exegesis is not only context, but you mentioned that part of good exegesis is biblical theology. Tell us a little bit about what you mean uh, by that. I, I think what you're trying to say is that every sermon is theological, even if it's not you know, a doctrinal sermon, as they would call it. Um, but exegesis is going to seek to convey... What is the theological truth of this passage? Yeah, in one sense, I think I think that's probably what I mean is that even though we're not specifically preaching doctrine, um, anything you preach is doctrine because all truth is God's truth, as Augustine says. So, uh, what really what we're going for is uh, a a sermon uh, that is, for lack of a better term, completely in line with the the narrative of Scripture. The idea that God has created this world, human beings have fallen from grace, and God is redeeming this world and will one day uh, turn this world around and recreate it. Uh, you think of those four four basic words for biblical theology, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Um, th- those are really, how can my sermon agree with the the narrative of biblical theology as it is portrayed in the 66 books of the Bible. And what we're not saying is that you force your sermon to fit a theological paradigm. Uh, For example, we would be in the Reformed Arminian tradition. We're not going to try to make every sermon fit the Reformed Arminianism paradigm. But at the same time, if we're preaching Ephesians 1 on predestination, that's a very doctrinal sermon. Um, Mm -hmm. I would hope that we would try to teach our people because here's the thing, brother pastors that are listening to us out there. If you don't teach your people sound theology, that's based in rooted in the scriptures. They're going to get it from pastor Google, which I would much rather than brother pastors get their theology from your sermons than from somebody on the internet. Um, what do you think, Ben, is one of those ways you talked about context? Tell us one way that we can identify context. If we've never been to Bible college, don't have any seminary, how do I, how do I find the context in the passage? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The easiest thing, uh, to, to find the context, easiest way probably, um, that's sort of short and sweet is to read like a paragraph before or a paragraph after, maybe a chapter before and a chapter after. Um, whatever passage you're you're studying for, um, but this is where again resources just really help. Um, you know, a resource like a commentary or some type of like 
Bible background book or um, sometimes even good maps will help you if you're preaching Old Testaments and Kings and Chronicles, you know, you're going to need a lot of maps or if you're studying the Kings of Israel, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I think the most the, the most important way to, um, and maybe the most better would, would be understood the most efficient way to to find the context is to probably just read a portion of scripture before, read a portion of scripture, ap- of scripture after uh, your passage of scripture. So we're preparing the pastor's heart. We're doing those spiritual disciplines. We're preparing our heart. Now we're getting ready to move into elements of the sermon. We've talked about already um, the element of exegesis, which is going to include looking at keywords and themes, context, and biblical theology. Now, what is the next step? We're going to move from doing this deep kind of pastoral grunt work in the biblical text. What's the next thing that we should do to be faithful as preachers of the word? Well, we have four steps here, and really these middle two could probably probably be given together, and that would be bridge the gap is what I've always heard it called, and I kind of like it. Um, but you, what you want to do is bridge the gap between you know the time of which your passage was written to the time in which you're preaching. Um, so taking what you've interpreted from the scriptures and then translating that into a, a modern day understandable uh, you know, piece of oratory that you're going to preach to your people. And that comes through things like uh, through like cultural context. It, it, it comes through knowing current event situations um, and, and then ultimately evolves into what we call application. Right. I think uh, Dr. Albert Moeller at Southern Seminary, I, I know that one of the things he does to prepare for his radio show, the, the briefing, as well as his sermons, man, when he travels, he'll have in the car with him newspapers and yeah. blog articles and things that people are talking about, and he'll bring that stuff into the sermon. And I think when we begin to think about what's going on in this cultural moment, However, we digest our news, <laughs> whether it's printed paper or on Apple News yeah. or whatever. But <laughs> MSNBC.com, even though I don't recommend Anyway, <laughs> we're not endorsing any media agency here on Everyday Theology. We're just saying no. that as we seek to apply the biblical text to our hearer, we want to know what's going on in our world. So we bridge the gap by illustration. Now, Ben, this is an area that most of us pastors, if we're honest, we struggle. We can look at the original words. We can look at our concordances and our lexicons and maybe even organize our sermons. But then we struggle when it comes to this element. In your years of pastoral ministry, Ben, what have you found to be like good ways to go about approaching illustrating the text well i'm just going to be honest with you i'm not the guy to ask um (laughs) because i'm not creative i i don't have a creative mind i'm very my mind is very analytical and i think very analytically so i i have a problem um analogizing texts of sermons um but i think um, one of the things, and I'm again, and I'm also not the guy to ask because I've only been preaching for about three years, and I'm still have so much to learn in this area. Um, 
But I think I think the best way to illustrate your sermon uh, in such a way to where it's applicable to your people is to be with your people. Mm. Um, th- there's a little book called um, um, it's a sh- it's a book on shepherding. You might help me on the title. It's Blue and White, and the the guy's name is uh, Whitmer, uh, Whitmer, uh, Anthony Whitmer. Anyway, the book is uh is um. I'll send you the the information on that, and we can put it in the show notes. But it's it's a book, and he basically talks about macro knowing and micro knowing, um, and it's a very great book. But anyway, bringing this back to um, what we're talking about today, illustration and how that relates to bridging the gap. Um, when I was pastoring as a lead pastor, one of the things I would do is I would actually go sit in the sanctuary at a different time in the week depending on how things were going, I would actually sit where so-and-so sits. And I would think about, now you got to be careful with that because if it's something that you're confronting, you don't want to call people out publicly. But I think it is valid for you to think about, um, you know, how is sister so-and-so going to respond to this? When she hears the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, about being salt and light is she, she's going to feel overwhelmed and she's going to feel scared. So my point is you got to know your people to illustrate the text. Um, but at the same time, I think not only should we know our people, we should also understand what is unique about the environment that we're in. So like if you're pastoring in Indiana, that's going to be different than pastoring in middle Tennessee or Arkansas. Um, similarities, the nature of the sermon is not going to change. You've got your biblical exegesis, and but it's just going to be how you apply it to your people. Yeah, and that's again, <clears throat> that's what I mean when I say that you could, you really could just you know kind of take the illustration, bridging the gap in application, and make it kind of two sides of the same coin because because that's really what application does, right? Is it it takes what you've interpreted and applies it to. Uh, the, the people sitting in your pew. What what does this mean for brother so and so who's a farmer, or what does this mean for sister so and so who's a nurse, or what does this mean for uh, the single mom who has four children and is you know just working two jobs and killing herself in the process? Um, you know, there's so many so many different areas here uh, where you take your application and um, and apply it in such a way. But but ultimately, is how does this truth um, affect those in my congregation, in the congregation God has entrusted me to to pastor. And I will say this: <clears throat> when we talk about illustrations, I think it's vital. I think it's um, vitally important that we sh- try to stray away from using our our families as illustrations. Absolutely, I agree. I I think that there's a lot of harm that comes. Um, to children and spouses and that really doesn't portray the excellence that we're trying to portray as ministers. It's just not necessary. And quite frankly, um, it's in most of the time, it's something that where your children has messed up or something of that nature. Um, And I, I just think I see these memes on Facebook about pastors and it says something like, you know, be be careful what you say or what you do because you might end up in a sermon illustration. And I want my kids to understand that that will never happen to them. I'm I'm not going to be airing their dirty laundry out in the pulpit. 
And quite frankly, just to be honest with you, and this may sound off-putting, but that's not the time. It's not the time. You're there to preach. You know, you're not there to tell stories about your family. Um, There are some things you can generalize, I understand, and sometimes where – uh, you know, something that happens to every parent might be applicable in, in one certain instance. But to sit here and say, my son was over here doing this three days ago, and I had to tell him and try to relate that to your sermon is just not necessary and definitely inappropriate, I, w- I would presume. Well, we say that in the negative sense about not shaming people, basically. But actually, the same applies in the positive for the minister and his family. If you're trying to teach on you know, evangelism, and we've probably all sinned in this way, and we need the Holy Spirit's help, but we shouldn't get up there and talk about evangelism and say, oh, you know, I, I've been doing this great thing <laughs> or whatever. I, I just feel very cautious about that. So just yeah, I, yeah. and bring our listeners back up to speed in case they maybe lost their connection or whatever. We're talking about important elements of a sermon. The first element is that the pastor prepares his own heart, and there's different ways to do that. The second element is getting into the sermon itself, which is biblical exegesis, studying the text. The second element, uh, third element from that would be bridging the gap, trying to find illustrations that connect to not only um, the heart, but also the mind of your Mm. parishioners each week. Then um, there is a fourth step in this process uh, which would just simply be application, and that's connected to the illustration point. Um, I think, Ben, you've already hit on this point already about how does this text impact believers in the 21st century? Um, because the meaning of the text is going to be the same, but how we implement yeah. it. And I think some t- one of the things that I've learned in my very, very limited experience of preaching is I can think about an objective in my mind, Ben, of how I want people to apply the sermon, you know, it's amazing oh, yeah. how the Holy Spirit brings stuff to the light that you didn't even think about saying. Yep. Yep. And I'm a manuscript preacher, too. Um, it's really funny because there's a lot of times where I, I I will preach from a fully developed manuscript and um, then have uh, then will have just some illustration come to me in the middle of my sermon and I just happen to say it and it works. And the thing about it is, again, I'm not creative. So we know it's the spirit, right? (laughs) When I have an illustration that actually works because most of the time it's hard for me to, it's just hard for me to come up with stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I think it's vitally important that we do depend on the spirit and that comes with preparing your soul to preach and having the Holy spirit illuminate your mind in that way. Well, earlier we mentioned the difference in preaching and teaching is that a sermon is going to call for a response. There is sort of a debate. um, This may be news to some of our listeners. There is a (laughs) debate about whether or not, you know, we should have invitations and what they should look like. Um, So, Ben, tell us what is what role do public invitations play? In the spiritual formation of the believer through the preached sermon. Golly, um, <clears throat> you would just throw that on me, wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> I I think as, uh, invitations are necessary, but I don't think invitations are to be manipulative. Mm. Um, let, let me let me put it a different way. 
that may be a little bit more helpful. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Um, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that that is the gospel, the power of God to salvation. He tells us in Romans 12 that we are not to be conformed to this world, but are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I am a firm believer. I am deeply persuaded that the gospel is transformative. And we preach not for information, but for transformation. Mm -hmm. And if that is the goal then we must have an opportunity for our people to respond. We must have an opportunity where our people are, are, are going to respond to the transforming power of the gospel. Now, how that plays out is going to look mightily different in every situation. But I would, again, avoid manipulation of emotions and charisma and you know the three points in a, in a poem type of thing. But at the same time, also avoid the extreme of saying, nope, no invitation because we might we might get to this manipulation. There's got to be a good balance of gospel, uh, a plea to respond to the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think some churches will be more implicit and some churches will be more explicit in their practice. I mean, you may not have an altar call in your worship service, but the pastor is probably going to call you to respond to something. Um, my church has been going through the church that I serve on staff um, as an associate and discipleship pastor, uh, we just finished a series about outreach. And, and so the kind of invitation to us is who are the people in your life that are already there that you have can reach out and share the gospel with? Yeah, that's the invitation. Um, and so we want to give some grace. I mean, you guys may not have uh, an invitation song at the end of your service. That's practical elements. What we're trying to say is, pastors, as you write your sermon, there should be, what are you inviting your people to? And I think that really we don't need to think less of people's intelligence. We need to realize that people are smarter than we give them credit. But we also mm -hmm. need to help people. I mean, you think about this, especially for people who've never been in church, Ben. They don't know what to do with it. Like they just heard a guy give a talk about this thing, but what am I supposed to do about it? And if we're doing our work as pastors, then we're at least going to anticipate some kind of outcome from preaching, which is developed through the invitation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, Dustin, so any, any concluding thoughts about elements in a sermon for pastors, maybe some encouragement? Well, I just appreciate our conversation today. I'm always happy to talk about preaching. It's it's one of my favorites yeah. to talk about. Brother pastors, we hope you stay encouraged and stay faithful to the work. Now more than ever, it is imperative for pastors to hold on to the truth and hold on to the deposit that has been given to them um, through their ordination and in their service. Brother pastors, we're not experts here at Everyday Theology. We just want to encourage you, keep pressing on. Dig deep in the word, dig deep in your community, love your people like Jesus did, and God's going to work mightily in your midst. Mm. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Everyday Theology. We hope this truth reaches you for your good and for God's glory.